Chapter Fourteen of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Comprising further particulars of Oliver's stay at Mr. Brownlow's, with a remarkable prediction which one Mr. Grimrig uttered concerning him when he went out on an errand. Oliver, soon recovering from the fainting fit into which Mr. Brownlow's abrupt exclamation had thrown him, the subject of the picture was carefully avoided, both by the old gentleman and Mrs. Bedwin. In the conversation that ensued, which indeed bore no reference to Oliver's history or prospects, but was confined to such topics as might amuse without exciting him, he was still too weak to get up to breakfast, but when he came down into the housekeeper's room next day, his first act was to cast an eager glance at the wall in the hope of again looking at the face of the beautiful lady. His expectations were disappointed, however, for the picture had been removed. Ah, said the housekeeper, watching the direction of Oliver's eyes, it's gone, you see. I see it is, ma'am, replied Oliver. Why have they taken it away? It has been taken down, child, because Mr. Brownlow said that as it seemed to worry you, perhaps it might prevent you getting well. You know, rejoined the old lady. Oh, no, indeed, it didn't worry me, ma'am, said Oliver. I like to see it. I quite loved it. Well, well, said the old lady, good-humouredly. You get well as fast as you ever can, dear, and it shall be hung up again. There, I promise you that. Now let us talk about something else. This was all the information Oliver could obtain about the picture at that time. As the old lady had been so kind to him in his illness, he endeavoured to think no more of the subject just then. So he listened attentively to a great many stories, she told him, about an amiable and handsome daughter of hers, who was married to an amiable and handsome man, and lived in the country, and about a son, who was a clerk to a merchant in the West Indies, and who was also such a good young man, and wrote such dutiful letters home four times a year, that it brought the tears into her eyes to talk about them. When the old lady had expiated a long time on the excellences of her children, and the merits of her good husband besides, who had been dead and gone, poor soul, just six and twenty years. It was time to have tea. After tea she began to teach Oliver cribbage, which he learnt as quickly as she could teach it, and at which game they played with great interest and gravity, until it was time for the invalid to have some warm wine and water, with a slice of dry toast, and then go cosily to bed. They were happy days, those of Oliver's recovery. Everything was so quiet and neat and orderly, everybody so kind and gentle, that after the noise and turbulence in the midst of which he had always lived, it seemed like heaven itself. He was no sooner strong enough to put his clothes on properly than Mr. Browner caused a complete new suit and new cap and a new pair of shoes to be provided for him. As Oliver was told that he might do what he liked with the old clothes, he gave them to a servant who had been very kind to him, and asked her to sell them to a Jew, and keep the money for herself. This she very readily did, and as Oliver looked out of the parlour window, and saw the Jew roll them up in his bag and walk away, he felt quite delighted to think that they were safely gone, and that there was now no possible danger of his ever being able to wear them again. They were sad rags, to tell the truth, and Oliver had never had a new suit before. One evening, about a week after the affair of the picture, as he was sitting talking to Mrs. Bedwin, there came a message down from Mr. Brownlow that if Oliver Twist felt pretty well, 
he should like to see him in his study and talk to him a little while bless us and save us wash your hands and let me part your hair nicely for you child said mrs bedwin dear heart alive if we had known you would have asked for you we could have put you a clean collar on and made you as smart as a sixpence Oliver did as the old lady bade him, and although she lamented grievously meanwhile that there was not even enough time to crimp the little frill that bordered his shirt collar, he looked so delicate and handsome. Despite that important personal advantage, she went so far as to say, looking at him with great complacency from head to foot, that she really didn't think it would have been possible, on the longest notice, to have made such a difference in him for the better. Thus encouraged, Oliver tapped at the study door. On Mr. Browner calling to him to come in, he found himself in a little back room, quite full of books, with a window looking to some pleasant little gardens. There was a table drawn up before the window, at which Mr. Browner was seated reading. When he saw Oliver, he pushed the book away from him and told him to come near the table and sit down. Oliver complied, marvelling whether people could be found to read such a great number of books seem to be written to make the world wiser, which is still a marvel to more experienced people than Oliver Twist every day of their lives. There are a good many books, are there not, my boy? said Mr. Brownlow, observing the curiosity with which Oliver surveyed the shelves that reached from the floor to the ceiling. A great number, sir, replied Oliver. I never saw so many. You shall read them if you behave well, said the old gentleman kindly and you will like that better than looking at the outsides, that is, some cases, because there are books by which the backs and covers are by far the best part. I suppose they are those heavy ones, sir, said Oliver, pointing to some large quatros with a good deal of gilding about the binding. Not always those, said the old gentleman, patting Oliver on the head and smiling as he did so. There are other equally heavy ones, though of a much smaller size. How should you like to grow up a clever man and write books, eh? I think I'd rather read them, sir, replied Oliver. What, you wouldn't like to be a book writer, said the old gentleman? Oliver considered a little while and said at last he should think it would be a much better thing to be a bookseller, upon which the old gentleman laughed heartily and declared he had said a very good thing, which Oliver felt glad to have done, though by no means he knew what it was. Well, well, said the old gentleman, composing his features. Don't be afraid. We won't make an author of you, or there's an honest trade to be learnt, or brick-making to turn to. Thank you, sir, said Oliver. At the earnest manner of his reply, the old gentleman laughed again and said something about a curious instinct, which Oliver, not understanding, paid no very great attention to. Now, said Mr. Brownlow, speaking, if possible, in a kinder, but at the same time, a much more serious manner than Oliver had ever known him assume yet. I want you to pay great attention, my boy, to what I'm going to say. I shall talk to you without any reserve, because I'm sure you're well able to understand me, as many older persons would be. Oh, don't tell me you're going to send me away, sir, pray, exclaimed Oliver, alarmed at the serious tone of the old gentleman's commencement. Don't turn me out of doors to wander the streets again. Let me stay here. I'll be a servant. Don't send me back to that wretched place I came from. Have mercy upon a poor boy, sir. My dear child, said the old gentleman, moved by the warmth of Oliver's sudden appeal, you need not be afraid of my deserting you unless you give me cause. I never, never will, sir, interposed Oliver. I hope not, rejoined the old gentleman. I do not think you ever will. 
I have been deceived before in the objects whom I have endeavoured to benefit, but I feel strongly disposed to trust you. Nevertheless, I am more interested in your behalf than I can well account for, even to myself. The persons on whom I have bestowed my dearest love lie deep in their graves, but although the happiness and delight of my life lie buried there too, I have not made a coffin of my heart and sealed it up for ever on my best affections. Deep affliction has but strengthened and refined them. As the old gentleman said this in a low voice, more to himself than to his companion, and as he remained silent for a short time afterwards, Oliver sat quite still. Oh, well, said the old gentleman at length in a more cheerful tone, I'll only say this, because you have a young heart, and knowing that I have suffered great pain and sorrow, you will be more careful, perhaps, not to wound me again. You say you are an orphan without a friend in the world. All the inquiries I've been able to make confirm the statement. Let me hear your story, where you come from, who brought you up, and how you got into the company in which I found you. Speak the truth, and you shall not be friendless while I live. Oliver's sobs checked his utterance for some minutes. When he was on the point of beginning to relate how he had been brought up at the farm, and carried to the workhouse by Mr. Bumble, a peculiarly impatient little double knock was heard at the street door, and the servant running upstairs announced Mr. Grimwig. Is he coming up? inquired Mr. Brownlow. Yes, sir, said the servant. He asked if there were any muffins in the house. When I told him yes, he said he'd come to tea. Mr. Brownlow smiled, and turning to Oliver, said that Mr. Grimwig was an old friend of his, and he must not mind his being a little rough in his manners, for he was a worthy creature at bottom, as he had reason to know. Shall I go downstairs, sir? inquired Oliver. No, replied Mr. Brown. I'd rather you remained here. At this moment there walked into the room, supporting himself by a thick stick, a stout old gentleman, rather lame in one leg, who was dressed in a blue coat, striped waistcoat, nankeen breeches and gaiters and a broad-brimmed white hat, with the sides turned up with green. A very small plated shirt frill stuck out from his waistcoat, and a very long steel watch-chain, with nothing but a key at the end, dangled loosely below it. The ends of his white neckerchief were twisted into a ball about the size of an orange. The variety of shapes into which his countenance was twisted defied description. He had a manner of screwing his head on one side when he spoke, looking out of the corners of his eyes at the same time, which irresistibly reminded the beholder of a parrot. In this attitude he fixed himself the moment he made his appearance, and holding out a small piece of orange peel at arm's length, exclaimed in a growling, discontented voice, Oh, look here, do you see? This is the most wonderful and extraordinary thing. You can't call it a man's house but find a piece of this poor surgeon's friend on the staircase. I've been lame with orange peel once, and I know orange peel will be my death, or I'll be content to eat my own head, sir. This was the handsome offer with which Mr. Grimwig backed and confirmed nearly every assertion he made, and it was the more singular in his case, because even for admitting for the sake of argument, the possibility of scientific improvements being brought to that pass, which would enable a gentleman to eat his own head in the event of his being so disposed, Mr. Grimwig's head was of such a particularly large one that the most sanguine man alive could hardly entertain a hope of being able to get through it at a sitting, put entirely out of the question a very thick coating of powder. "'I'll eat my head, sir,' replied Mr. Grimwig, striking his stick upon the ground. 
hello what's that looking at oliver and retreating a pace or two this is young oliver twist whom we were speaking about said mr brownlow oliver bowed you don't mean to say that's the boy who's had the fever i hope said mr grimwig recoiling a little more wait a minute don't speak stop continued mr grimwig abruptly losing all dread of the fever in his triumph at the discovery that's the boy who had the orange if that's not the boy so who had the orange and threw this bit of peel upon the staircase i'll eat my head and his too no oh, no he has not had one said mr brownlow laughing come put down your hat and speak to my young friend i feel strongly on this subject sir said the irritable old gentleman drawing off his gloves there's always more or less orange peel on the pavement in our street and i've known it's put there by the surgeon's boy at the corner a young woman stumbled over a bit last night and fell against my garden railings directly she got up i saw her look towards this infernal red lamp with this pantomime light don't go to him i called out of the window he's an assassin a man-trap here the irascible old gentleman gave a great knock on the ground with his stick which was always understood by his friends to imply the customary offer whenever it was not expressed in words then still keeping his stick in his hand he sat down and opening a double eyeglass which he wore attached to a broad black riband took a view of oliver who seeing that he was the object of inspection coloured and bowed again that's the boy is it said mr grimwig at length that's the boy replied mr browner how are you boy said mr grimwig great deal better sir thank you replied oliver mr Brownlow seemed to apprehend that his singular friend was about to say something disagreeable asked oliver to step downstairs and tell mrs bedwin that they were ready for tea which as he did not half like the visitor's manner he was very happy to do he's a nice-looking boy is he not inquired mr Brownlow. i don't know replied mr grimwick pettishly don't know no i don't know i never see any difference in boys and you know two sorts of boys mealy boys and beef-faced boys and which is oliver mealy i know a friend who is a beef-faced boy a fine boy they call him with a round head and red cheeks and glaring eyes horrid boy with a body and limbs that appear to be swelling out of the seams of his blue clothes with the voice of a pilot and the appetite of a wolf i know him the wretch come said mr brownlow these are not characteristics of young oliver twist so he needn't excite your wrath they are not replied mr grimwig he may have worse here mr brownlow coughed impatiently which appeared to afford mr grimwig the most exquisite delight he may have worse i say repeated mr grimwig where does he come from who is he what is he he's had a fever what of that fevers are not particularly too good to people are they bad people have fevers sometimes haven't they eh? i know a man who was hung in jamaica for murdering his master he'd had fever six times he wasn't recommended no mercy on that account Pfft, nonsense and the fact was that the inmost recesses of his own heart mr grimwig was strongly disposed to admit that oliver's appearance and manner were unusually prepossessing but he had a strong appetite for contradiction sharpened on this occasion by the finding of the orange peel and inwardly determining that no man should dictate to him whether the boy was well looking or not he had resolved from first to oppose his friend well mr brownlow admitted that on no one point of inquiry could he yet return a satisfactory answer and that he had postponed any investigation to oliver's previous history until he thought the boy was strong enough to hear it mr grimwig chuckled maliciously and he demanded 
with a sneer whether the housekeeper was in the habit of counting the plate at night because if she didn't find a tablespoon or two missing some sunshiny morning why he would be content to and so forth all this mr brownlow himself somewhat of an impetuous gentleman to knowing his friend's peculiarities bore with a great good humour as mr grimwig at tea was graciously pleased to his entire approval of the muffins matters went on very smoothly and oliver who made one of the party began to feel more at his ease than he had yet done in the fierce old gentleman's presence and when are you going to hear the full true and particular account of the life and adventures of oliver twist asked grimwig of mr brownlow at the conclusion of the meal looking sideways at oliver as he resumed his subject tomorrow morning replied mr brownlow i'd rather he was alone with me at the time come up to me tomorrow morning at ten o'clock my dear yes sir replied oliver he answered with some hesitation because he was confused by mr grimwig's looking so hard at him tell you what whispered that gentleman to mr brownlow he won't come up to you tomorrow morning i saw him hesitate he's deceiving you my good friend i swear he is not replied mr brownlow warmly if he's not said mr grimwig i'll and down went the stick i'll answer for that boy's truth of my life said mr brownlow knocking the table and i for his falsehood with my head rejoined mr grimwig knocking the table also we shall see said mr brownlow checking his rising anger we will replied mr grimwig with a provoking smile we will as fate would have it mrs bedwin chanced to bring in at this moment a small parcel of books which mr brownlow had that morning purchased of the identical bookstall keeper who has already figured in this history having laid them on the table she prepared to leave the room stop the boy mrs bedwin said mr brownlow there is something to go back he's gone sir replied mrs bedwin call after him said mr brownlow it's particular he is a poor man and they are not paid for it there are some books to be taken back too the street door was opened oliver ran one way the girl ran another and mrs bedwin stood on the step and screamed for the boy but there was no boy in sight and the girl returned in a breathless state to report there were no tidings of him dear me i'm very sorry for that exclaimed mr brownlow i particularly wish these books to be returned to-night send oliver with them said mr grimwig with an ironical smile he will be sure to deliver them safely you know yes do let me take them if you please sir said oliver i'll run all the way sir the old gentleman was just going to say that oliver should not go out on any account when a most malicious cough from mr grimwig determined him that he should and that by his prompt discharge of the commission he should prove to him the injustice of his suspicions on this head at least once you shall go my dear said the old gentleman the books are on a chair by my table fetch them down oliver delighted to be of use brought down the books under his arm in a great bustle and waited cap in hand to hear what message he was to take you are to say said mr brownlow glancing steadily at grimwig you are to say you have brought these books back and you have come to pay for the four pound ten i owe him this is a five pound note so you will have to bring me back ten shillings change i won't be ten minutes sir said oliver eagerly having buttoned up the banknote in his jacket pocket and placed the books carefully under his arm he made a respectful bow and left the room mrs bedwin followed him to the street giving many directions about the nearest way in the name of the bookseller 
the name of the street, all of which Oliver said he clearly understood, having superseded many injunctions to be sure and not to take cold, the old lady at length permitted him to depart. Bless his sweet face, said the old lady, looking after him. I can't bear somehow to let him out of my sight. At this moment Oliver looked gaily round and nodded before he turned the corner. The old lady, smiling, returned his salutation, and closing the door, went back to her room. Let me see, he'll be back in twenty minutes at the longest, said Mr. Brownlow, pulling out his watch and placing it on the table. It will be dark by that time. Are you really expecting to come back, do you? inquired Mr. Grimwig. Don't you? asked Mr. Brownlow, smiling. The spirit of contradiction was stronger, Mr. Grimwig's breast at the moment, and it was rendered stronger by his friend's confident smile. No, he said, smiting the table with his fist. I do not. The boy has a new suit of clothes on his back, a set of valuable books under his arm, and a five-pound note in his pocket. He'll join his old friends, the thieves, and laugh at you. If ever that boy returns to his house, sir, I'll eat my head. It is worthy of remark, as illustrating the importance we attach to our own judgments, and the pride with which we put forth our most rash and hasty conclusions, that although Mr. Grimwig was not by any means a bad-hearted man, and though he would have been unfeignedly sorry to see his respected friend duped and deceived, he really did most earnestly and strongly hope at that moment Oliver Twist might not come back. It grew so dark that the figures on the dial plate were scarcely discernible. But there the two old gentlemen continued to sit in silence with the watch between them. End of chapter 14